We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Some of you know I've diagnosed myself with BAD, Bible Acquisition Disorder. Um, I've been doing better, I've been in rehab, and I've been selling off Bibles in the internet that I don't use. I've been giving some away, but in the process of my BAD, I've become part of many Bible interest groups on Facebook. And I guess that's kind of like BAA, Bible Acquirers Anonymous. But in those groups, you're usually encouraged to buy more, not less. But anyways, last week I came across a post in one of these groups that said, hey, drop a favorite Bible verse. And so I... I went back to really one of the earliest verses I remember committing to memory, besides the usuals, John 3.16 and and Romans Road. I committed to memory the NIV, Isaiah 54.10, which states, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And so I kind of put that down, really in the Bible group, if I'm honest, kind of fleetingly. Like, well, favorite verse, i got to share Isaiah 54.10. I posted it and I moved on. And because I'm also a horrible phone addict, uh, one night when Christy was feeding Landon at 3 in the morning or whenever, I picked up my phone to peruse Facebook because looking at screens is always a good idea before falling back to sleep. And somebody posted on this verse of mine that I just kind of, semi-interested, put down, some pastor from South Korea, you meet lots of Bible addicts on the internet, and he writes in response to what I wrote, he says, Kevin Davis, thank you, thank you, thank you. I am in tears after reading this. I'm going through so much now, I needed this absolutely comforting truth. And I had to go back and read Isaiah 5410. (laughs) And... John, I'm not going to pronounce his other names, this pastor from South Korea is taking comfortable truth from the fact that God is talking to his covenant people and he's making a promise. And after I reread it, because I memorized it, (laughs) and I applied it to myself and my condition, I too found comforting hope. And to put it unpoetically in Kevin's semi-crass version, the world can go to hell in a handbasket. And even I can be guilty of it getting there, but God has an unfailing love for me. God has peace to give and God has compassion on me, a sinner. At least how that's the Lord spoke to me that night when I reviewed my favorite verse. And I bring that up because we're going to go through the largest recorded sermon in the book of Luke from the lips of Stephen today. We're not going to study all of it. But we're going to see Stephen lay out how God has always had in mind those who are in Christ to be his covenant people, for he has promises for them. So I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Lord's word today. If you're able to stand, we'll be going through many verses, but we're just going to, for our sake at the beginning here, finish out Acts chapter 6. So let's just start this morning in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And we'll finish out chapter 6. We read, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
than some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, as I just demonstrated, sometimes I'm guilty of coming to your word fleetingly. Some of it becomes so familiar to us that we forget that your spirit is living and active and speaking to us every time we look upon your words. Sometimes we come to your word incorrectly, thinking that it should all be about us or it should be all about the doctrines and theological constructs that we've been given from from teachers. And Father, we want a fresh word from your spirit. We know that your spirit is the one that has written these words. We know that your spirit can be present in teaching us. Help us to be yielded to you, submitted to you. Help us to learn under your teaching. Father, get me out of the way and say what it is you desire. We pray against the enemy that he would have no effect here. We ask and pray all this in the power and work and saving grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. It's been said here before, but it bears repeating that we live in a mission field. I am grateful for people like Samson and Priscilla who came here two weeks ago. Uh, They are Indian nationals who are serving on the mission field next country over in Nepal. God calls people out of their own countries, like Abraham, to go and be among foreign people and be Jesus to them. But God calls people where they're at to stay where they're at and be Jesus to their neighbors. Stephen is a missionary to his own people. See, if we can if we can look back to a few verses my mentor Hunter covered last week. We note rather quickly that a complaint arose among the Hellenists, that is also the the Grecian Jews, Jews who were Jewish in ethnicity, but Greek in culture because they had been dispersed from where the Jews mostly lived in Israel. And these Hellenists said, hey, among our widows, they aren't being cared for. But among your widows, you great conservative Jewish people who live where you should live, they're being cared for. What's with that? That's Kevin's lame version. The twelve disciples responded to these Hellenists in verse 3, and I missed this. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. So I wonder if you, you hear that. The people being chosen for this duty in the passage were chosen from the Hellenists, from the Grecian Jews. Seven men of good repute full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then verse 5 would verify us by virtue of their Greek names (laughs) that the seven chosen were indeed Greeks. Stephen is one of them. And so we pick up today realizing that Stephen is among his own here. Verses 
8 through 10 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, you know the rule to read all those words loud, bold, and confidently. Nobody questions if you're pronouncing those words right. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what's interesting and what Hunter alluded to last week was that here was Stephen chosen to serve among the widows and disperse the food. But immediately Luke reveals that he's actually bearing the marks of an apostle. Luke would use the same language earlier in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, about the apostles. He says, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So was Stephen an apostle? I think what's most important is that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. As Acts chapter 6, verse 5 says, the Holy Spirit is the one doing signs and wonders through Stephen, which in turn was authenticating his ministry. And he's serving at tables, but he's also about to preach. Now, I'm going to relate to you in a, in a job sense. As a pastor, I can tell you this. Sometimes there are times where it's like back to the grind. <laughs> and perhaps as farmers, contractors, even retirees, it seems like no matter where we're at in life or what our daily grind is, we can begin to feel like we're chained to that grind. Well, I'll always be here. I'll always do this. And what I see in this passage and what I see throughout the Bible is that though Stephen may be primarily what we call a deacon in the first church, his label does not stop God from using him. Listen, whatever your role, your job or your season is, it's never a hindrance to God. It could be that Stephen was making his rounds, delivering his food, And in the middle of the conversation at the synagogue, the Holy Spirit sees an end. And so Stephen began speaking. We read again at the the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia. He rose up and disputed with Stephen. Apparently commentators have nothing better to do than to bicker back and forth. So is Luke talking about one synagogue? Or is he talking about the synagogue of the freedmen, the synagogue of the Alexandrians, the synagogue and so forth? So that's the question. I tend to think it's only one synagogue and Luke is then describing the particular makeup of that one synagogue. Cyrenians and Alexandrians would represent people from North Africa. And then Cilicia and Asia would represent modern day Turkey which is a miracle in itself because you think about Turkey now, no Christians. (laughs) Furthermore, we should consider here from the outset of this entire episode naming this nation Cilicia. Luke, by the time he's writing this entire book, is a companion of Paul. And here in a few chapters, namely the end of chapter 7, Paul is going to enter the story in this episode with Stephen and we see that the very garments of Stephen's persecutors, were laid at the feet of Saul. And then in Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of Stephen's death. Now, spoiler alert, Saul is Paul. <laughs> and we, we call him Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is the capital 
of Cilicia. So it could be that Stephen is in Saul's synagogue, the very synagogue that, that uh, is disputing with Stephen. And it's also the synagogue that Saul would attend. Though it ends badly for Stephen, we must know that it's not because Stephen was defeated. Rather, we told he's full of grace, or some of your translations may say faith instead of grace. Now, those are two different words. That situation is that some early manuscripts said grace, other ones said faith. And then also he's full of power. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom that his hearers could, quote, not withstand. There was really no match to counter-argue Stephen is what's happening. So what do big-headed people do when they can't argue and fight sound logic and sound reasoning and and well-founded reasoning? Well, they resort to cheating, of course. So we read in verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? I want to read to you a passage from the trial of Jesus near the end of his life. Matthew 26, 59 through 61 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The story around Stephen is forebodingly like Jesus. Because like Jesus before Stephen, Stephen is going to die before all this is over. Stephen is going to die for the gospel. And the primary charges against Stephen are twofold. Very important. Perk your ears up. You can wake up now. Very important because it is about these two charges that the high priest asks Stephen, are these things so? And then secondly, I'm going to show you that Stephen is going to go throughout Israel's history to answer particularly the two charges brought against him. So the questions are like, I missed it. What are the two charges? The two charges are Stephen is speaking words against, quote, this holy place, that is the temple. And second charge is that Stephen is speaking against the law, the temple and the law. What's more interesting is that what the false witnesses say have a modicum of truth to it, which is why he's being charged for it in the first place. If they brought Stephen before the people and he says, Stephen says he's a pig. (laughs) That's very obviously he's not. (laughs) But there's a modicum of truth to it because Jesus did say the temple will fall and it did fall in 70 A.D. Jesus said he fulfilled the law. Wayne read to us that the old covenant is away with. We are in a new covenant. Paul would tell us in Romans that the law is not bad or sinful. It was just a foreshadow. But what Stephen is going to reveal and what I want you to see is that the foreshadows of the new covenant have always existed in God's covenantal people. 
Before we move on, we see Luke make the point that Stephen had a face like that of an angel, right? This reminds us of Moses coming down the mountain after being with God. This reminds us of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. So what the Holy Spirit wants people to see in this is perhaps what Saul, who is there for this entire thing, will eventually see. And also when Saul comes to on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say to him? Why do you persecute me? It's exactly that. The council is actually about to put Jesus on trial again. The spirit of Jesus is in Stephen. Very interesting. The very first words here in verse 2 of chapter 7. He, and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Do you hear that? <laughs> Brothers and fathers. Stephen is talking to his kindred. And I think we can take this to heart in our day and age. Stephen says to the people about to kill him, not that he knew then and there that he would die, but he says to his opponents, brothers, fellow worshipers, fellow Jews. And then he says, fathers, people in authority, the fathers of our faith and of our tradition right now. I like what one of my commentators says. One can be bold without being rude. (laughs) He didn't say, hey, idiots. (laughs) And teachers who don't have any of it figured out. No, he says, brothers and fathers. Then he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. I must have had two different translations going here, sorry. (laughs) Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, and not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So first off, two two big ideas. Before the temple and even before the law, because this is before the time of Moses, here is God making a covenant people outside of the Holy Land. Here is God making a covenant people and promises of blessing, goodness, and salvation, right? That's deliverance from others who would enslave them. And God blesses and promises all of this to Gentiles because the Jews were forming here. (laughs) And to people who hadn't kept the law because the law did not exist yet. Does that make sense? Do you hear how Stephen is schooling the teachers of his faith, how God operates? 101. He he operated really well without a temple and without the law. He promised blessings and deliverance without a temple and without the law. He made a covenant people without the temple and without the law. 
in fact, the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. What do we read in verse 5? Note the emphasis of facts that Stephen lays out. Verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it. That's the promised land. That's Israel. Not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. What Stephen is saying is Abraham, the righteous man, the friend of God, as James would call him. Who was he before God outside of the Holy Land, outside of the temple, and in fact never lived to see such places? The point, God works and God operates outside of the box that the Jews have in Stephen's time and sometimes outside of the box we have for him. Then to really get his hearers going, Stephen has the audacity to recount the Exodus story, right? Hey, even in Egypt, God works. <laughs> he told his covenant people, you'll be enslaved for 400 years, but God promises to deliver you. But there's no temple there. <laughs> there's no law set up and God's working in Egypt of all places. Stephen brings up circumcision. And we know circumcision is long before the Exodus, long before Canaan is conquered. And the point being is that God covenanted with his people right then and there. And he did not need the temple. He did not need the law. He did not need the Holy Land to do it because his covenant is with his people based on a promise. We continue in verse nine. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his fathers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. What Stephen begins to do here and actually will highlight through his sermon, and it will culminate in a blatant personal accusation at the end of his sermon, in verse 51, he says to his hearers, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So emphasis as on as your fathers did. Stephen begins to reveal that God's anointed persons who usually saved the rest of his people have a history of suffering and rejection from their own people that goes along with their deliverance. So God said that captivity, he said to Abram, captivity will happen. But God did not reveal that the captivity will have its origins in Abraham's great grandson selling their own brother Joseph into slavery. The Jewish patriarchs were blessed by the brother they rejected. Joseph turns around, he's exalted as leader. He's in the land and he blesses them. So it's kind of like that the stone that the builders, Israel's patriarchs, rejected becomes the cornerstone. Seems like Joseph has foreshadows of another rejected cornerstone that we know. Verses 12 and 13 tells us that it wasn't until the brother's second visit that Joseph made himself known. 
So the brothers came to Egypt. They came to Joseph. They didn't recognize him. Interesting that John, the evangelist, writes of Jesus as he opens his gospel account. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Stephen is is picking his words wisely as he builds to reveal that the entire history of Jewish people is leaning into the coming of the Messiah. And perhaps we can take a hint in verse 13 that just as Joseph makes himself known, when Jesus comes the second time, there's going to be no mistake. Rather, as Paul would tell us, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back in Acts chapter 7, though, we we now come to the beginning of Moses' story. And Stephen is going to go back to the topic of the promise that God made to Abraham. The promised land, the promise that God made of the land... Though God made that promise outside of the temple and before the law to a Gentile people that he covenanted with. We read at the beginning of verse 17 that as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. That still happens today. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. What is interesting and probably intentional, I'm sure, in Stephen's words here, is his highlighting Moses' pagan education, instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And so the point that Stephen is making again is God's ability and, in fact, his track record of working with the types of people Jews aren't comfortable with. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Why didn't God chose Aaron to be the deliverer? Why did God go really outside of the Hebrew people to the Egyptian courts And take that half-breed Moses, who wasn't really a part of the Hebrews, in culture at least, and make him the deliverer of the promise. Stephen says Moses was mighty in word and deed. Now, because I'm a Bible nut, that made me think about something that happened in the book of Luke. Do you remember the Emmaus story when disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're talking to Jesus, lamenting over the fact that Jesus is dead? There's a lot of irony in that statement. And whenever Jesus is playing dumb and he asks them, well, who is this Jesus? The disciples answer, he was a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. I also like the wording here in verse 20 that Moses was brought up in his father's house. See, Jesus is the son of the father. Moses was adopted by the Egyptians. Jesus was adopted by the world. Moses saved his people from the Egyptians. And so Jesus saves his people from the world. We move on to verse 23. Your troopers. (laughs) When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, that is Moses' heart, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed men and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, Stephen is highlighting an incident that I believe is maybe no doubt sinful. Moses killed, murdered an Egyptian. But it's interesting, he highlights it not to condemn Moses, but to condemn the same thing that Joseph's brothers were guilty of, and that is rejecting or resisting God's deliverer, right? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? God did. God made him a ruler and judge over them. And they're just as they rejected Moses, they'll be rejecting Jesus too. Finally, we come to the end of our passage. We, we read on to see God's appointment of Moses to be the deliverer for the Jews. And we pick up in verse 30 and we read on through verse 37. It says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai and a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. And there came to the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place which you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now listen to to what Stephen says now. He says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So again, Moses is in the wilderness, which in case if you don't know is outside of Israel. (laughs) And in case if you don't remember, it's before the law. And God shows up to this rejected leader, Moses, and says to him, you're standing on holy ground. Now, it's interesting because that's not the temple. (laughs) It's not in Israel, but it's holy ground. And what's more amazing is that God intends to work outside of Israel. He says, I've seen their affliction. And here is God saying, I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to do something. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that Israel claims, is going to go to pagan Egypt and save people. And then as I emphasized, this is the man, this is the Moses. Stephen is basically saying, this half-Egyptian Hebrew... This murderer of Egyptians rejected by his fellow kinsmen, this shepherder, which is Stephen's time, shepherds were at the low end of the totem pole. This shepherd from the wilderness, this is the man that God chose to raise up and to do signs and wonders as the apostles were doing signs and wonders and as Stephen is doing signs and wonders. And then emphatically, very relevant to the conversation that Stephen in the synagogue was having, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, if you have another Bible in front of you, such as the King James or the New King James, 
Let me just share with you from a Bible. I've been reading the modern English version. This is what verse 37 says. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Him you shall hear. And you're like, that's four words (laughs) that your English standard version is missing. I know. And some of you might find a rabbit trail that I could do here really fascinating. Some of you, you, others of you are like, just finished the sermon already. So I have a five-minute read pamphlet available for those of you who are very interested in what's happening here. Suffice it to say, Bibles like the ESV who omit, him you shall hear, are descended from manuscripts that don't have those words. Why do some manuscripts have those words and others do not? Some wonder that if the manuscripts that do have those words were actually written by scribes who could have looked back into the Old Testament passage that Stephen is quoting or speaking from, namely Deuteronomy 18.15, and finish it out for Stephen. Deuteronomy 18.15, the ESV does include there, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Now, Stephen's point here by bringing this up is really a point blank. The prophet like Moses has come. His name is Jesus. And what's ironic to me, as I pointed out earlier in the passage, we realize that Saul is probably present and he's just burning with rage what Stephen is saying. But then whenever God knocks him down and he realizes Stephen is right, because uh, God is right, <laughs> he turns around and he writes in Romans 4, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. Right? So do you hear this? The promise came to Abraham didn't come to Abraham through the law. How so? Well, quite honestly, because the law wasn't around yet. It came after Abraham. So if it didn't come through the law, how did it come? But through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, in other words, if it's the Jews, if it's the recipients of Moses' law who are to be the heirs, the heirs of what? the heirs of the promise to Abraham, then what? Then faith is null and the promise is void. Why so? Because no one can keep the law. (laughs) There's no promise given if the law can't be kept. Verse 5, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Does that make sense? If you don't have a law you can break, well, there's no transgression you can do. Verse 16, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you hear that? That means that you and I are in the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but it's in fact all the way back in Genesis when God is saying to Abraham, I'm giving you an offspring. Who is that offspring? According to Paul here, you and I are covenant people. We're the offspring of Abraham. We're the inheritors of the promise. Paul ends Romans 4 this way. It says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Sorry. That's Paul saying we're in the Bible because every believer in Jesus 
goes all the way back to Genesis. Because it will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what Stephen, I believe, is saying, and apparently what Saul really heard and eventually internalized and then vocalized as Paul is that, well, here's how I would word it, and maybe you've heard it before. The Bible is about Jesus. But not just the Bible, the entire Jewish faith is fulfilled in Jesus. The law is fulfilled in Jesus. The covenant that God has with his people is not because a plot of land, a temple, and a law, but it's because of Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so what Stephen is aiming for at the end of his sermon and what I'm aiming for right now is, are you in Jesus? If you ever read the Bible and you see things like, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, but my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you and you wonder, am I holy enough to receive that? Right? I don't know. I've sinned quite a bit. I keep asking for forgiveness over and over. Is God through with me? Don't look to a plot of land that you are on or not on. Don't look to a temple. Don't look to your ethnicity. Don't look to a law that you just fail to measure up to. Look no further than Jesus Christ. Look no further than the one like Abram who left his homeland of heaven. And like Joseph was hated by his brothers and like Moses, who was half Hebrew and half Egyptian to rescue the Hebrews from the wrath of the Egyptians. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and he's able to rescue the men from the wrath of God. Is Jesus in Jesus? You and I are covenant people and in Jesus, you and I are recipients of the promise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, it's amazing. You've been writing a story since the world began. And the story is all about how you came to save a people. And the story is all about how you take each and every person who believes in you into a right relationship with you. Father, to be united with our Creator, there is no greater thing. And through you, we are all children of God. Father, there are many people, myself included, who need this truth over and over and over. And there are many people who have never been made aware of this truth. And they're wondering what the gaping hole is in their lives. Father, would you help us to seek out those people who don't know you so that we can help them to make your acquaintance? And Father, would you remind us daily that You've accomplished all that is necessary to get us right with you. And because of you, you, we can read the Bible front to back and realize that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That what you wrote for your covenant people, the Jews, you actually wrote for your covenant people, the children of God, who share the very faith of Abraham. Father, we thank you for this truth. We ask that you would use it to glorify you and to edify others. Help us as we go about our week to do your will. And we know we can only do it if we're empowered and in walking in tune with your spirit. So we pray that we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.